Can you trust your thinking? I should clarify. A rhetorical question as we begin. <laughs> just, just think for a moment within your own mind. Can you trust your thinking? How reliable are your thoughts? Do, do your thoughts always serve you well? Or do they at times mislead you, lead you astray, deceive you? Can you trust your thinking? It's a question that often in the counseling office I'll write on my big whiteboard in there, and I'll just let it float as I talk with the counselee. Just, just want the person to consider that perhaps their way of thinking may be somehow harmful to them. Especially, and I don't mean, let me just clarify, I don't mean to, to cause someone to question themselves in some unhealthy way or some unhelpful way. I don't mean, you know, you should question whether or not 2 plus 2 equals 4 or the sky is blue or things like that that you think about that you know with confidence. I don't mean in those areas. I mean especially with regard to, like, your perspective of your life. And I mean especially when your perspective on your life results in some kind of ingratitude or resentment, discontentment, frustration, irritation. You see, all of us believe lies to one degree or another. We believe lies. Our perspective is warped. It's like if you've ever uh, been to a, a fun house. I don't even know if these things are around anymore, but a fun house where you look at all the different mirrors, you know, and there's some mirrors and you look in the mirror and and your body looks all wavy and strange, and some you look really tall and super skinny, and others really short and stubby, and, and the mirror like alters the perspective, and then you see yourself in an actual normal mirror, and you see the way it really is. You see things as they really are. You see the truth. Well, so often our perspective is warped, isn't it? It's distorted, and that can be harmful to us and enslaving to us because lies enslave. Lies are destructive, and to whatever degree we believe lies, we suffer as a result. And our loving Creator, our loving God, is so merciful and gracious and kind that He comes to confront our lies. You see, Jesus is all about confrontation and liberation. Confrontation, we could say, for the purpose of liberation. He, he came, as it was prophesied in the Old Testament, Jesus came to set the captives free. And that's what he does. And so as we think about this passage this morning, I hope that we can consider our own lives and our own ways of thinking, and I hope that in some fresh way, God can meet you where you're at and can minister his grace to you this morning and a little bit more of his freedom, his truth. John chapter 8, I'm going to read the passage once again. David read it earlier. I'm going to read it once again just to get it in your minds, and as usual, we'll walk through it and sort of break it down together, Okay. So beginning in verse 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That's our passage. 
Jesus declares, he is the son who sets us free. Now to begin with, let me remind you of the context because it says here in verse 31, Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him. And the prior verse, verse 30, and we ended on this note last week, it says that people there came to believe in him. Many came to believe in him. And that's great, that's a good thing. And yet notice how Jesus digs deeper. Notice how he keeps probing. He's not content with superficial with even a belief that says, okay, we believe this man has wisdom, this man has a lot of great things to say, this man is powerful, but he probes deeper. He goes to the very core of their being. And this is what he says. He says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. He's offering them freedom, and he begins with this idea of continuing in his word. And that word continuing could be translated uh, abiding, those who abide in my word or those who remain in my word. Sometimes it can be used of like a literal abiding in a certain location, in a certain place. And it's like Jesus is saying, look, for you to truly be one of my disciples, one of my learners or followers, then you must be committed to basically living within my word, within my truth, within my perspective, continuing in my word. Now, what is his word? Well, Obviously, there's, there's more that can even be recorded. At the end of John's gospel, he says, I couldn't even record all the things Jesus did or all the things Jesus said. However, we can summarize and highlight some of the points that we've hit along the way, some of the high points in terms of Jesus' declaration that he is, he is the bread of life. He is the living water. We've been seeing recently, he is the light of the world. They've just finished, the Jews in this context, the religious Jews had just finished their celebration of the Feast of Booths, and they were there in Jerusalem and well, many people were there congregating together, and, and they, it was a great time of celebration. They were just sort of going through their traditions and their rituals like we would on any given holiday, on Thanksgiving or Christmas. They were there celebrating their normal routine, and, and he came to, um, to declare himself to be the point of everything they had been doing, to be the real and only source of spiritual life. You see, these people believed they were, they were religious, they believed they were... Uh, they were committed to, preoccupied with the things of God. And, and they were, according to the prescriptions of the Old Testament. But still it was superficial, it was surfacy, and Jesus was seeking to take them deeper. And he did so by proclaiming over and over and over again, I am life. And so we considered the, the imagery of the light rituals they had there. And he says, I'm the light of the world. And the water rituals, and he said, I'm the living water. He's just saying, I'm the true substance. That all of these types and shadows point to so that's his word. In summary, it's the word of God's provision to mankind. It's the word of the loving God coming to meet people where they live back then and today. It's the same idea that we began, that the note on which we began this sermon of, of confrontation for the purpose of liberation. That's what Jesus was about, and that's what Jesus still is about. His word, and he says, you must continue in this word. That is how freedom takes place. That is where liberation comes from. He says, and when you know the truth, in verse 32, it does what? It sets you free. When you know the truth, it sets you free. Now, this is a little bit counterintuitive because, again, I said the idea is kind of like almost imprisoning our minds within his word, within his truth. And naturally speaking, what we tend to think is, well, true freedom is when I can think the way I want to think. When I can believe what I want to believe or do what I want to do, value what I want to value, 
we, we naturally speaking tend to believe that's where true freedom comes from. And yet he's saying true freedom actually comes from being confined within my thinking, my way of thinking. Again, it's counterintuitive. Like someone else's perspective? Hmm. Invitation to abandon our own thoughts and our own sense of confidence? Interesting. Paul spoke of this, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. He said, we are those who are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And an idea of like captivity within his thoughts, this is the irony here and the paradox, captivity within his thoughts amounts to true freedom. That's where freedom comes from. And we'll continue to dig deeper into this as we go along. But notice this idea of just freedom this way, which is, again, counterintuitive. Sometimes I'll be um, counseling someone and we'll talk about this idea of a healthy sense of self-doubt, not, not some unhealthy version of that. I don't mean like an unhealthy, like mentally unhealthy version. I mean a healthier sense of just, you know what, I'm open to another perspective. Perhaps my feelings of anxiety, fear, discontentment, frustration, anger, hostility, maybe those feelings and thoughts are, are, some, are something unhelpful to me that I, that I need another perspective on. And so sometimes when there's resistance and I can tell that the person isn't quite seeing what I'm trying to say, I'll ask them, okay, so with your perspective as it has been, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? I mean, this morning I could ask you the way you've been thinking about whatever it is. And it's probably some form, and we're going to get into this as well a little bit more in just a moment, but just some form of like, well, if, if only, you know, the if only kind of lie. If only... I had more, or if only I could be more than I am, or if only this, or if only that, and all the misery that goes along with that. And so then when I'm trying to challenge that, I'll ask the question, How, how's that working for you? <laughs> and usually, the person will say, not all that well, actually, now that you mention it. <laughs> so Jesus comes, first of all, to confront, but in the, in the best possible way in the way that we need him to confront us the most, these deepest levels. But notice in this offer of truth and liberation, the truth that sets you free, this is their response in verse 33. They answered him, and this is the same people who in verse 30 says they believed, but look what they say here. Uh, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Isn't that interesting? It's kind of their way of saying, well, we're, we're good, actually. I think we've got this. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved, which, by the way, is just patently false. So wrong on so many levels, but just interesting for a moment. Like, consider their history. I mean, from being enslaved to the Egyptians, Philistines, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, currently the Romans, you maybe like miss, maybe think a little more carefully about your response. But that's not even really the point. Jesus doesn't even really go there. Because look where he goes in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. He's like, I'm not talking about even the externals, even though you're wrong on that level, but I'm talking about like the internals. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And who is this everyone who commits sin? Well, it's very simple. It's everyone. 
they were indeed enslaved, and yet not realizing it. So we could ask the question, can a, can a person be enslaved and not even realize it? And that's a fairly harmless question to ask. Let me go a little deeper. Is it possible that you could be enslaved and not even realize it? Could you be enslaved in some way and not even realize it? Could there be some perspective, some distorted outlook that's harmful to you that results in untold pain, immeasurable frustration, discontentment, enslavement? It begins with um, freedom begins with just getting real, being honest, the, the truth being, being willing to accept that perhaps I, I need another perspective and there is, there is something where I kind of need the lights to be turned on for me. And, and not being content to just carry on in deception. Even though that can be more, that's clearly more natural, can also be more comfortable, but it's just, it's just not helpful, is it? And I, I, I don't know how else to illustrate this. This is the one that comes to my mind years ago, eons ago, we used to watch the uh, American Idol, the reality show American Idol. Some of you have watched that, and if you haven't watched it, you at least know the idea. Then there were other, I think, The Voice and all these other reality shows about singing competitions. People in our country who have singing ability to one degree or another, and would get on there and audition for the show. And there were times when, and, and, and the producers kind of turned this into a humorous thing, but it's kind of sad when you think about it. There were times when contestants would come on there, and they would be in the audition, and they would start singing, singing and I'm telling you, like three seconds into, you're like, oh, this person cannot sing to save their life. And then they would carry on, and it's just brutal and awkward and painful to watch as this person is just singing, and it's awful, like nails on the, the chalkboard, just awful, okay? And then the judges would make some comment, and there were numerous times, and I, it blew me away, there were numerous times when the judges, who themselves were either amazingly accomplished singers, artists themselves, sorry, artists themselves or whatever, and so these people know their, they know their stuff, like experts in the field, and they would say, uh, sorry, you can't sing, adios, and the person would argue with them. You ever seen those? And they would say, oh, I know, I know I could sing. My mom always said I could sing. It's always the mom, right? And the grandma, she too, she's, I know I can... Hey, you may believe that, but that's not true. And all the rest of us know that's not true. This is our human condition. There's this tendency within each one of us to believe lies, to miss the truth. And part of liberation begins with an acceptance that I need God to reveal truth to me. Even as, and dare I say, especially as a religious person who believes in him, committed to scripture, committed to the things of God, the good, healthy traditions and rituals that we engage in and participate in. I mean, this is Jesus' audience. And he says, but still you're missing the heart. And when he begins down this wavelength of thought, they resist and say, no, 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 I'm, no, not me. We're good. We've never been enslaved to anyone. On the contrary. So Jesus lovingly and patiently, I mean, how patient is Christ here? He's God in their midst. He's right there with them. And they're arguing with God. <laughs> and he patiently endures and just keeps speaking truth to them. So he says, truly, truly. And it's kind of like our way of saying, no, seriously, <laughs> really. 
This is the way it actually is. I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. It says in 1 John that if we say we have no sin, we are lying. And his word does not remain in us. It's kind of the same terminology even that the same writer is using in the gospel here. This idea of continuing in his word. If we deny the reality of our sin, we're not continuing in his word. We're missing something. It requires that we see it, that we call it what it is. That we're honest about it. So he says here, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. It's enslaving by nature, isn't it? It says to do with not only sins in terms of the sins that we commit, thought, word, and deed, but the condition itself, the condition of sin, which itself is a condition of slavery, which is why he says those who commit sin are the slave of sin in terms of the sin nature, the fallen nature that all of us were born with. It's deceptive. It's enslaving. Later in John 8, we'll look at this in weeks to come here, but in the same conversation, he refers to Satan, the evil one, the father of lies, the liar, the murderer, the one who comes to destroy, who is delighted to enslave through his falsehoods, his deception. And there are innumerable iterations of his deception, both outside the church and inside the church. I think of um, this idea today, and, and it's not new, but we're seeing extreme versions of it manifesting themselves today, and it's really very sad, but people believing with regard to sexuality, well, if, if I could just be free from all moral standards, then I will truly be liberated. Something like the LGBTQ plus movement, and it's unfortunate that so often there is a lack of compassion in addressing this, and that is our natural tendency to lack compassion toward other people. But in truth and in compassion, speaking the truth in love, God reveals, hey, this is the truth in terms of parameters. This is what's healthy for mankind. I, I am good to you in creating you with the gender even that I've given you, and God gets to determine that. And true freedom is not us trying to somehow extricate ourselves from the parameters God's established, but living within them. Because that's what's good and healthy for God's creatures made in his image. It's his truth and his perspective that sets free and heals. Not somehow believing I could, if I could just go and do whatever and be whatever. Because it's not even grounded in truth. And so there's the culture's version that, of that. And there are countless expressions and manifestations of that in the culture. But again, I don't want us to lose this idea. Especially important, particularly important for people like us. Church people who know that. But yet still somehow we buy into another kind of lie. If the culture's way is, well, you can be free by just sort of casting off morality and tradition. Sometimes the church's way is, well, you can be free if you just embrace morality and tradition and just sort of embrace this form of humanly concocted or manufactured external human righteousness. If you just do that, then you'll be free. And it sets people up for failure as well because you have all these expectations and all these, don't even realize it, but all these idols, all these other here and now realities that we're chasing, losing sight of the fact that Jesus himself personally is life. God is life. 
He's the living bread. He's the living water. Not even the external or superficial things that we can kind of polish up on the outside within the church. Not even those things. No, God himself, God alone, is life. Knowing him, being known by him, and believing fundamentally, in terms of our perspective, believing this, the opposite of the lie of Satan. Because what was his lie from the beginning? It was this. God's not been good to you. And usually... In the church, especially, we don't like fall for that lie. We know God is good. He's the creator. But here's the lie that's more subtle that sometimes we can succumb to. This one, God's not been good enough to you. Like if only, you know, just kind of a little bit more. If only my, the subtle ones, if only my kids were just a little bit more obedient. If only our lives were just a little bit less messy. If only we didn't have to live surrounded by such difficult people or belligerent people. If only, if only, if only, just like a little bit more. And we lose sight of the fact that right here, right now, with what is, where we are and what we have as it is, if God exists, if he is truly our loving Father, if he is causing all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then it's good then the problem is not outside of us. It's inside of us. It's somehow a lie. It's somehow a distorted perspective. And we need the truth which sets free. I remember years ago, pastoring in Washington, and I've mentioned my ministry there many times, but one experience I had there that was just a very simple and yet revolutionary experience for me. So we're living in Washington an hour south of Seattle, okay, even if you've never traveled there, you probably know it rains a lot there. It rains a lot. And it was a particularly rainy season. And I remember day after day, week after week, month after month of rain, just like dripping away at your soul. And I show up at church one morning during that season, and I remember talking with someone out in the parking lot as we're making our way inside. Well, here we go again. It just goes on and on with the rain. And a friend of mine got up to pray at one point, and he prayed something like this. God, thank you for the rain. Thank you for how it makes this area so green and beautiful. Thank you for the food that is provided for by the rain. And I remember in that moment, like, being confronted, as we're talking about confrontation and liberation, right? Being confronted in my perspective, my negative, ungrateful, entitled should be sunny every day. Well, maybe, I don't know, my wife and I have talked, maybe if it was just sunny during the day and just rained all night, that'd be cool, right? <laughs> and it's a good gift when the sun comes out and we enjoy that, but just a little perspective shift, you know what I mean? Hmm, interesting how we tend to think. And you think of Jesus and it's truly amazing that he lived his life in this world a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, living in, in the rough-and-tumble world, the same rough-and-tumble world we live in, and frankly had it a lot harder than most of us have it, or all of us have it, really, when you think about it. And yet every moment, grateful, thankful, joyful, serving, focusing on others, not complaining. It's amazing. And here he is, and he's speaking the truth to them, and he's not only speaking the truth, but he's embodying the truth for them. He's living it. And he's going to go to the cross and die for them and die for the lies. 
die for that lie within this that God's not good to me, he's not good enough to me, it needs to be more, this needs to be bigger, better, this, that, whatever. He dies for all that so that we might be forgiven by our God. So that we might be assured that we're accepted even when we have a crummy attitude, even when we're not seeing things the way they really are, even when we're deceived. We have a God who's merciful toward us and says, oh, I just, I just want you to be free. I'm coming to set you free from where you're stuck in your own head. Isn't it amazing? You ever been on vacation? You're in a beautiful place. The surroundings are amazing, but you're stuck in your own head. And you're, you're worried about money, or you're worried about this or that. Or you're frustrated with some family member who's either with you, or someone who's back home that you can't stop thinking about, and you're in a battle in your head. I mean, isn't it amazing that we can be incarcerated in our own brain, weighed down, burdened by the lies? really is a hard issue. Jesus cuts right to the core with these folks, and he's doing the same with us. Today, he says, slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. I'll get into this more in future weeks, but um, he's playing off this idea of their pride and their heritage. Hey, we're Abraham's descendants, and they view themselves as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their lineage, their heritage. They're very proud of that and, and believed that they had this sonship, and they, and they did have sonship, nationally speaking. But yet he says, look, you're... You're still actually, spiritually speaking, you're in the category of slave, and there's only one who can set you free, and it's the Son, and I'm the Son, and I have all the rights and all the inheritance, and I'm the only one that can give it to you. It's not even just this. It's not even just about a principle of the truth setting you free, though that is true, that the truth sets you free. It is that, but more so, it's a person who sets you free. It's the God who is truth. The God who speaks truth, who has spoken truth from the beginning and who always speaks the truth, he's the one who sets you free. The Son must set you free. Be counseling people, and I, and I know because I feel this in my own life. Like, I, okay, if, if I could just get it, if I could just get the, whatever the lesson is, God, if I could just get it so we could move beyond this so I could just be free. And isn't it amazing how it just sometimes seems to take so long? It's because it's, it's not about some formula. It's about a relationship in which you're learning to trust your maker and learning to believe what he says is true. And that's a process and that's a journey and he's taking us along. It's a person who's setting you free. It's not just some ideas or some words or whatever. It's a person. The sun sets you free. And by the way, what's the result of that? When we experience freedom, when the perspective shifts, when there previously was ingratitude and now there's some gratitude. Previously there was a lack of joy and now there's some joy. And you know that Christ did that for you. You know that he set you free. You know that he helped you. And there is celebration in that. There is rejoicing in that. The Son sets you free. It's by design. And he says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free Indeed. Another word would be, you'll be free, actually, really free. Not the human counterfeit freedom stuff. Like real freedom. It's anchored in the truth, capital T, truth of God. There was um, an illustration I read years ago, Charles Spurgeon, you've probably heard of him. He was talking about this idea of being set free by Christ and he referenced the slaves or the, rather, the prisoners, I should say, prisoners, so, so convicted criminals uh, 
in the Middle Ages. How painful it was when they were shackled because you think of like the heavy chains and the iron shackles and then when the guards were to put the shackles on they would have to take this big mallet and hammer in the rivets to, to hold it all in place. It's an excruciating process when those chains were put on the prisoners. And what they would say is that there was only one thing worse than the pain of having the chains put on was, was when the time came, when they had served their sentence or they were going to be set free, what was more painful was to have all the shackles and chains removed because of, over time, the corrosion and everything else. And so they really had to pound hard to remove the chains, to break them off. And, and Charles Spurgeon reflected on this and he said, yeah, it was amazing that not one prisoner ever refused the process. Because he knew what was on the other side. So I want you to ask you to consider, I want to ask you to consider this morning. Where is it that life feels most painful right now? Where is it that you are feeling opposed, confronted in some way? Where is it that you find yourself enslaved to just discontentment, dissatisfaction, frustration, anger? What is it that God is up to? In revealing, hey, there's, there's slavery here. You're stuck here. And I'm here to rescue you. What is he up to? That pain, though we don't enjoy it, it would be strange if we did enjoy it. We don't enjoy it. Uh, it is not aimless. It's purposeful. Because you do have a good heavenly Father who loves you. Who disciplines you, as it says in Hebrews 12, not like earthly fathers, not as it would somehow give him an advantage. He doesn't need any advantage. He has all the advantages. Don't worry. He's all set. But he disciplines us, it says in Hebrews 12, 4, ready for this? For our good, that we may share in his holiness, his otherness. And a big part of that is that we may see more clearly through the lies, that we may see the light of the truth that our God is good. And He sure is good enough. And He's good in who you are with all your limitations and aches and pains. And I know that's a very real thing and suffering is difficult and none of us enjoy it. And God Himself has mercy and compassion on us in it. But, but even in right where you are, who you are, who He made you to be, and what you have or, or don't have, he is good. Doesn't something just ring true that as we live our lives, things so often feel like they're just, they're just too something. Like T-O-O, too something. It's just like it's too hot or it's too cold. Or it's, it's too wet or it's too dry. Or that person is too affectionate or not affectionate enough or too strong, or not strong enough to this, to that, so often, the way we tend to think. And it's kind of like we're saying, God, if, if you were really, really good, then, then the, the weather would be this way. Or I wouldn't be, I, if you were really good, I wouldn't be stuck in this marriage or this singleness. Or if you were really good, I would, I would, have, I would have more friends than I have, and I wouldn't feel so left out so often of, of social activities if I could just have more friends and more this or more that, or if, uh, on the other hand, if I could just have less. 
if I didn't have to be like the center of attention all the time, if I didn't have to be in the middle of all the social stuff, if, if only whatever, God would be good. We have a Savior who lived in this world, who experienced every form of suffering, who was tempted in all ways we are tempted and yet without sin. A Savior who believed the truth every moment. He always trusted that his Father was good. Even in the suffering of his final hours when he cries out, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And then he follows that up with the thought, yet not as I will, but your will be done. He knew that the greatest good was in God's will for his life, not his own. Did you hear that? The greatest good was in God's will for his life, not his own. The greatest good for us is in God's will for us and our lives, not our own. Our Savior comes to communicate that. He comes to embody that. He comes as our substitute. He comes to die for all of our crabbiness and ingratitude and lack of joy and all the things that plague us. He comes and dies for all of that. His his blood is shed and poured out so that we would know there's nothing left to do. There's nothing else. God doesn't require anything of you, but provides everything for you. And even the life of following and serving others, is, it comes as a result of that liberation in the heart and in the mind where you start to see that other people actually exist. And they're there to be served and helped and to be an opportunity for outworkings of God's compassion in and through you. You see how that works? The fruitfulness of that life, that vital union with our Creator to know that He is the life, the way, the truth, and the life. Do you see how all these things fit together? We have a good God. It's so, so um, valuable that we can be here together on a Sunday. We can talk about this. We can remind one another of this. We can sing about this. We can delight in this. And then we go back out into the rough and tumble world. But may God help us. May he be with us and remind us. May he use the circumstances we're going through, whether it be the traffic, your work environment, your physical aches and pains, the family brokenness and wreckage, or the good of enjoying the last few days of summer, a good day at the beach, a wedding celebration, all the good, whatever the good, either way, May God continue to point all of us to his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his kindness, his plan for us and his plan for all things, the redemption and restoration of all things. May he help us to remember that is the truth. And may, as we remember that truth, may we walk in greater degrees of freedom. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We have so many words swirling around in our minds, and so frequently our perspectives are harmful to us or distorted at least in some way. And as a result, we experience feelings of emptiness, frustration, greed, jealousy, resentment, hostility so often. And while, God, it would be very easy for us to apply the truths of this passage to the world out there, please help us to begin in here, in our own hearts, in our own minds. And I even pray on behalf of of all of us this morning, would you please show us? 
Would you open our eyes to see where we're entangled, where we're enslaved? Would you help us to see your perspective, your truth, and to celebrate and to rejoice, to be thankful children who, who have had the chains broken off, set free in your amazing grace and love. Thank you, God, for what you reminded us of this morning. Thank you for what you may have revealed this morning. Pray that you continue to reveal truth, that it might set us free, and that we might be joyful, thankful children. In Jesus' name, amen.